You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. And now as we prepare our hearts to receive from God's word, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 12. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Thank you, George. We have begun this series through Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church, his second letter, that we're calling Hold Fast, asking what does it mean for us in turbulent times to hold fast to timeless truth? And one of the most important aspects of doing so is through prayer. And we asked this morning, what does it mean to prioritize prayer? And what are the priorities in our prayer? How should we be praying when we are experiencing great pressure? Let me pray for us now. And let's ask God together that he would move in our hearts as we open his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that it is to communicate with you and have through your son Jesus assurance that our prayer will be heard. I pray that you would show us this morning how vital and essential it is that we pray and that in our prayers we should prioritize the things that you prioritize, that we might be strengthened and enabled to live in very difficult times. God, for those who are discouraged, I pray that you would meet them this morning. Pray for those who are far from you, that you would draw them near. And for those who do not yet know you, we pray that today they would come to know you. And as we open your word, would you open our hearts? Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You may have heard the story of a philosophy professor who used to begin his class every year by setting out a large glass jar 
on his desk in front of the whole class and say, I'm about to teach you the most important thing you will learn all year. First, he filled the jar with large rocks and asked the class, is it full? To which the class responded, yes, it's full. And then he proceeded to pull out a bag of small pebbles and pour them into the jar. And he asked again, is the jar full? Yes, the class responded. And finally, he pulled out to their surprise a bag of sand and began pouring the sand into the jar, filling all the nooks and crannies, all the available space of the jar, and asked a third time, is the jar full? And the class said, yes. He went on to say, I want you to recognize that this jar signifies your life. The rocks are the truly important things. The pebbles are the slightly lesser important things. And the sand signifies all the remaining small stuff, such as material possessions in your life that fill up the time. And here's the point. If you put the sand into the jar first, you have no room for the rocks or the pebbles. You must prioritize what is most important. Now, one keen student observed you could put some liquid in there, and so when asked if they could add coffee to the jar, the professor said there's always room for coffee. (laughs) But this morning, I would like to suggest to you that this, first of all, is true of prayer. Prayer must be a priority, not something that we try to squeeze in later but also that within prayer, there are priorities of how we pray. And so Paul prays three times in each of the brief three chapters of Second Thessalonians. He tells us here in verse 11 that he constantly prays. But what I want you to see this morning is that there are priorities that shape how he prays. While prayer can include asking God for many things, there are the rocks, if you will, the requests that we should prioritize when we come to God. What is surprising about this short prayer that takes up two verses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, given that he is praying for people who are experiencing great pressure and great trouble, is what he does not pray for. In his prayer for people under pressure, it is striking to note that he does not pray that they would be immediately taken out of their trial. Nor does he pray that they would become successful or comfortable or popular or wealthy. No. What we learn here is that Paul's prayer for troubled people is shaped by what he believes to be most important. He puts the rocks in first. So what is it that we should prioritize in our prayers? What is it that we should put first into our prayers? And friends, this is an important question to ask because it will shape your view of God, how you approach him. It will shape 
your expectations of the Christian life in general and how you face pressure in particular. Well, I want you to note this morning three priorities that are essential to praying under pressure. And the first is one that I must convince I rarely pray when things are going bad. And that is to pray for godly character. How often is it that when you are under great stress and pressure that you pray for your character? As Paul reflects on the trouble that these men and women have been experiencing, the trials they are enduring, where does he begin? What comes to mind and what should be at the front of and center of our minds and hearts when we are facing trial or know others who are? He prays for godly character. At the beginning of verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God would make you worthy of his calling. After all, trials are revealing. It is when we are pressed and pressured that our character is really tested. If you want to learn a lot about yourself, if you want to learn a lot about the other people in your life. Observe how we all behave in times of trouble. Because it's often the case that trials can reveal a lack of character in our life. But on the other hand, depending on what you're holding on to and what is at work in your life, trials can also reveal a strength of your character. This morning, if if you're not yet a Christian, where does your strength of character come from? What is it that you are holding fast to that you are hoping will enable you and change you when things go hard? What is it that you're trusting in? What does your life really reveal that matters most to you? And is that thing or those things, are they really worthy of your trust? And if, you're, if you are a Christian, you're meant to be holding fast to Christ. And it is steadfastness that he produces in your life. It is character that he produces in your life. And that is the very thing that Paul prays for when he asks that we would be counted as worthy. But there's some potential confusion here. And so it is important to note that Paul is not praying that we would somehow develop worthiness in this life so that one day we would be counted worthy of God's love and acceptance. And therein lies the tricky nature of the phrase, make you worthy. Because literally in the original language, the phrase is that we would be accounted as worthy or considered as worthy. It is a declaratory word, shown to be worthy. The difference is important. There is no possibility of us somehow accumulating merit as a way of being worthy of God's love and favor. 
After all, the very gospel that we believe, the good news about Jesus Christ, is not that he came to a worthy world, but an unworthy world of sinners who had turned away from God and are under his judgment. But he came anyway because of his grace and his power that saves us and transforms us. And as others see this transformation in our lives, they say, oh, look at the change that reflects God's work. In other words, worthiness is not the reason for God's favor. It is the result of God's favor. Here's why I stress the point. There are many people today, some perhaps even in this church, who believe that you must show a worthy life. You must work very hard at living a worthy life so that somehow at the end, when you breathe your last and stand before God, you would say to him, God, has my life been worthy enough of entrance into your kingdom? And God's like, I I don't know. I mean, there was 2024. It was election year. It wasn't a good year for your character. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you were worthy. Let me consult with the angels. He's like, I don't know. Like looking at your CV and you're like, was I worthy enough? That's what many people think Christianity is. I've got to work hard. I've got to merit. I've got to make myself worthy so that one day God will accept me. Friends, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is good news that it's not. A worthy life is not the reason for your salvation. It is the result of your salvation. God saves sinners. He rescues us, our unworthy lives. But after that, he changes us from the inside out. His spirit fills us. He gives us a new heart. We are changed. And as a result, we live a life that reflects him. That is what Paul is praying for. He's praying that you live a life worthy of the call. To put it another way, Paul is praying that God would be at work narrowing the gap between what you believe and how you behave. What you claim to believe, what you profess, and how you actually behave. He's praying that God would narrow the gap of where we are now and what we will one day be in glory. And as that gap is closed and the evidence of our salvation is shown in the way that we live, we are living a worthy life. Do you, in times of trouble, pray that you would behave according to what you believe? I must confess it is very often not my priority in prayer. I'm usually, God, I'm in trouble. Will you get me out of this as soon as possible? Yours truly. (laughs) Pastor Tim (laughs) Chaddock. Do you pray for your character? Do you pray, God, this is very hard for me right now, but my, my first request is that I would live a life in this difficult time that is worthy of Jesus Christ, that reflects the transformation that you've already begun in my life that I would become who you've already called me to be. Now, my wife and I, we don't watch many shows. I'm not saying that as a virtue signal. It's because I go to bed at like 8.30. My wife's like, really? You're in your 40s. I'm like, yep, 8.30, time for bed. Anyone? No. 
But we do have a guilty pleasure. It is Netflix, The Crown. Which, of course, dramatizes the life and reign of the late Queen Elizabeth. But it does not begin with her. It begins with her brother, the Duke of Windsor, who famously abdicated the crown, making Elizabeth queen. And recalling his childhood as the Prince of Wales, he said, My father, when I had done something wrong, would admonish me, saying, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. You are the son of a king. Live accordingly. It is our conviction that our Heavenly Father says the same thing to all those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. You must remember who you are. You are the son or daughter of a king. Live that way. Those who are sons or daughters of a king, they do not need to earn their place in the family line but rather to demonstrate the character worthy of the place that is already theirs. This is both important and very convicting. Let me give you an example of how this works in my life. As a pastor, my vocation is, of course, connected to my faith. So it doesn't take long in a conversation with other people before they become aware that I am a professing Christian. And so because of this, I am acutely aware of how my behavior will be perceived. And so I pray that I am a worthy representation of Jesus. But sometimes I fail, particularly when you're dealing with a mobile phone company that has charged you for things that you did not order. And this was brought home to me in my conversation with one of their agents and representatives. I won't mention the company. But when I was on the phone with Verizon, the woman, (laughs) I was on the phone for an hour and a half. They had charged me unjustly for something that I did not want. And it was a lot of money. And I said, I didn't ask for that. I've been charged. And listen, you can ask my kids. You don't want to be around me in these situations. The kids are like, dad's mad, you know? And I just, all the theory of like justice, I'm a lawyer, I'm a detective, I'm all the things. And this poor woman, I'm like, so, I'm like, no, no, no. You, I mean by you, Verizon, you cannot, you know, I'm just so mean. I was mean for an hour and a half. I was like so rude to her, but it was a justice issue. And finally, after an hour and a half, she's like, okay, I'll forward this up to my supervisor. I got to fill out this form. So name, Tim Chaddock, occupation. Um, I am a um, spiritual director of sorts. A kind of a community leader. Uh, she, uh, sorry, uh, cl- cl- clergy? Cl- uh, sorry, what's, cl- I'm a pastor. Oh, 
of a church. Yeah. That's why you need to pray for me, friends. (laughs) I was not, in those moments, a great representation of Jesus. It's why you need to pray for me. It's also why you need to pray for yourself. It's also why you need to pray for one another. That we would live in such a way that is worthy, that is representative of the one who has saved us by grace. Do you prioritize this in prayer when you are under pressure? Paul did. And so we must as well. God, this is hard. Please. May I live worthy of Christ in this situation. But to do that, you need power. And that's the second priority, the second rock, if you will, that Paul places in the jar of prayer. We need to pray for godly character. Secondly, we need to pray for spiritual power. When we are hard-pressed and weary, tempted to give up or give in, where is it that we turn? What, what, is, what is the resource that we rely upon? Paul displays the priority here of praying for spiritual power when he says in the middle of verse 11, and that by his power, not our power, by his power, he may bring forth to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. In what ways was God's power at work? In what ways can we come to expect God's power? How should we pray for God's power? Well, Paul gives us two ways. We pray for our desires, and we pray for our deeds. We pray for our attitude, and we pray for our ability. And for both, we need spiritual power. Under pressure, we need spiritual power that shapes our attitude. Paul is essentially praying that these believers and all believers would have a resolute will, desires that are prompted by faith. As should be obvious to us, not all of our desires are prompted by faith. Not all of our desires are good. If we're honest, we experiencing, or we experience daily, conflicting desires. When you are treated badly by your coworkers, you may feel a conflict between your desire for revenge and your desire to show grace and kindness. When you are experiencing tough financial times, you may feel a conflict between your desire to hoard what you have or be sacrificially generous when you're on the phone with the representation of your mobile phone company unjustly charged. That was true, by the way. I wrestled between the conflict of 
getting what was owed me in the most efficient way possible or showing the kindness of Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, what is it that ultimately determines your decisions? What is it that ultimately shapes your desires? That's what you worship. And it comes out when you're tested. But for anyone who follows Jesus, the Bible clearly tells us that we're given a new nature, a new heart. The Holy Spirit comes and lives and dwells in our lives and we're given new desires. Yay. But we're also told there's a war between the two. A war between these new desires and the old desires. That is desires from what the Bible calls the flesh. That is human nature apart from grace. There's a war, a conflict between the two. And if we're honest, we feel that struggle every day. Therefore, we must pray. Pray, God, I have these conflicting desires. I don't really want to do good in this situation. So I'm asking for spiritual power to reshape my desires so that I might be prompted by faith and not by my flesh. God, shape my attitude. Help me to want what you want. Help me to desire what you would desire in this situation. Some of you this morning, you're like, well, I don't feel like praying for good stuff. I get it. So pray that you would want it. (laughs) Some of us feel that when it comes to prayer, we got to wait till we want something and then pray it. I'm like, no, if there's something good that I should want, but I don't want it, I should be praying all the more. And so if you pray with me, you'll often hear me, God, I really don't want to do this, but I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to help me want to do it. And you know what? You will be surprised at how often God answers that prayer. Pray for your attitude. But also we need spiritual power to transform our ability. I got to do it. I got to live this out in front of the world, in front of people. But it's a power that does not rest on me, but on the power of God. God is the one who supernaturally empowers us for the work that he has called us to do. And when we are in troubled times, service, which is most likely what Paul is referring to here when he says good deeds, as we learned about in our study of the book of Titus last year, is usually not the first thing that comes to our mind when we're struggling and suffering. And yet it's one of the most radical witnesses for Jesus Christ, who himself came into a hostile world not to be served, but what? To serve. This is remarkable. And it is particularly powerful in a world where Good deeds prompted by faith would be totally counterculture, as it was in the Roman Empire. A world that was actively against those early Christians. Now, it is true that some hundreds of years later, after Emperor Constantine became ruler, he professed Christian faith. And for the first time, Decades followed in which Christianity began to have an even greater influence across the Roman Empire. The beliefs and the behavior witnessed an explosion. However, here's why I tell the story. Julian, who became emperor a little bit later, after Constantine in 361, though he was raised a Christian, he ended up despising Christianity. 
In fact, he longed for a revitalization of the worship of Roman gods. But it was hard work. After all, among other things, it was the sacrificial service of Christians that made the pagan religions look so bad. As Julian went around the empire, he's looking at these pagan religions saying, how come we're not serving the poor? And and the priests, I just read a whole book on this. The priests are like, we never serve the poor. (laughs) He's like, look at what the Christians are doing. And so with a little bit of suspiciousness and venom, Listen to what Julian wrote. Julian the Apostate. By the way, nobody wants that title. These impious Galileans, he's slandering Christians, they not only feed their own poor, but ours also. Welcoming them into their agape, they attract them. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor. The hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Little spicy from Julian. He was frustrated that the priests of these pagan religions weren't caring for people and doing good deeds like the Christians. But it only made sense because all the gods that they worshipped did not care for the poor. So why should their worshippers? And in the end, there's a great irony. The very thing that Emperor Julian wanted for the pagan worshippers, deeds of mercy, had only developed because of Christianity. And where did that come from? Christ himself. The one God who made the world, lowered himself into the world, to become a servant in order to save the world. What an opportunity we have in times of trouble and great pressure to invest in good deeds prompted by faith. Friends, there are many opportunities, both in and outside of the church. Inside the church, countless opportunities for you to serve the young people of our church, the children of our church, the other adults in our church through community groups or whatever it might be. And then outside of the church, in your place of work, in your community, in your, in your neighborhood, there are so many opportunities. Now, some of you might say, well, I don't have the ability for it. Have you prayed? Have you prayed for spiritual power from on high to be supernaturally enabled to do this work that can be such a witness for Jesus Christ. Don't worry about whether or not you feel naturally empowered. God will supernaturally empower you to do these good deeds prompted by faith. So this morning, perhaps it is the case, as it is often for me, that we don't have that desire. Or we may feel that we lack the ability. Well, that is why we must pray. God, reshape my attitude and enable my ability. I need spiritual power. And step out in faith and watch what God will do. We must pray in times of pressure for godly character. We must pray for spiritual power and to keep doing so even when it is difficult. And that leads to the third and final priority 
in Paul's request. We must pray for heavenly perspective. When you are in times of pressure and trouble and even persecution, you must pray for heavenly perspective. We need to have a vision of where we are headed and what this life is all about, especially when it's hard. And so Paul, at the end of his prayer, reveals a third priority for the Thessalonian church and for us. He says at the beginning of verse 12, we pray this so that what? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Why do we need godly character? Why do we need power so that we can desire and do deeds prompted by faith? So that Jesus Christ is praised. So that Jesus Christ is put on full display. So that Jesus Christ is magnified in our lives. That is the goal. And the reason this is important for us to take to heart is because it is quite often that many of our efforts are driven not by a desire to win glory for Jesus, but to win praise for ourselves. Let's be honest about this. There is a parable that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon used to tell about motivation. A parable of a great king who had many subjects under his care. He was a good king. And on the occasion that a farmer in his kingdom yielded a great crop of carrots, he took the largest carrot of all and put it in a wheelbarrow and brought it to the king and said, oh king, I'm so grateful to be your subject in your land and my my land has yielded such a wonderful harvest and I wanted to bring you this great carrot as a gift. And the king said, oh, farmer, whatever his name was, you know, oh, farmer, how generous it was and kind that you have brought this great carrot to me. In turn, I am going to give you a second plot of land that you can farm and cultivate. And the farmer thought, oh, wow. And he went away overjoyed. Now, in the presence of that conversation was a member of the king's guard who oversaw the horses. And he thought, if another plot of land is what you get for bringing the king a carrot, what would the king give me if I gave him another horse? So this man in charge of all the horses went out and found this beautiful horse that he could add to all the other horses the king had. And so he brought this horse before the king and said, oh, king, you're so good. I just wanted to show you this new horse we've added to your stable. And the king said, wow, thanks. And walked away. But the man employed by the king was like, oh, uh, sorry, k- king. Sorry, just, just a question. I-, I was there the day the farmer, he brought you the big carrot. And when he brought it to you, you gave him a second land. So I was wondering if you were going to give me more. And the king said, ah. See, the farmer brought me the carrot, but you gave the horse to yourself. It wasn't out of gratitude. It was out of self-interest 
that you gave. Friends, how often is it the case that even when we serve, we lack this heavenly perspective and we begin to do things for our own glory and not for the glory of Jesus Christ? This can happen in even the smallest of ways. Whether you serve on a team in this church or you serve out in the community, there is always a temptation to lose heavenly perspective and do things for your own glory. It can happen anywhere. Maybe in recent months, you heard the call for more children's workers. And you thought, well, though it will be a great weight upon me, I will serve. I will heed the call of Reality Church of Ventura and I will serve those little lambs. And you show up on your first day and you labor and you toil, but you expect to get praise and yet you receive none. You expect in your mind, you're like, I have served. And you're, you're anticipating that as you descend the stairs that all of the members of this church are like, You served our children. You're like, no, don't stop. Don't stop. <laughs> and you're surprised when you don't get the praise. You're like, I heard Anna, your kids director, gave a gift card to another volunteer. Well, I didn't get a gift card. I heard it was from Urbane Cafe of all places. I got nothing. I don't think I can be a part of this church anymore. You were giving that role to yourself. But what would it look like to do it for Jesus Christ? What would it look like if our service and our activity and our endurance and perseverance was for the glory of Jesus? See, the essence of sin is to place self at the center. But when we do that, it only brings destruction, eternal destruction. But we were made not to glory in ourselves, but to glory in something greater than ourselves. We were made for that. Nobody who takes a trip to the Grand Canyon stands at the precipice and says, I'm amazing. (laughs) If you do, that's weird. (laughs) Just like selfie at the Grand Canyon, but the Grand Canyon's not in the picture, just your face. It's weird. We were made to glory in something bigger than ourselves. Ultimately, we were made to glorify Jesus Christ. In fact, we are most satisfied when Christ is most glorified in us. And so we must pray that Christ be glorified, that that would be our perspective, even in hard times. And friends, here's the beautiful addition. One day, as we put Christ first, in the end, we will be glorified with him. No, not that we will be praised, but that we will, be, we will be transformed in the very presence of Jesus. For when Paul speaks of the glorification of believers, he is speaking about that glorious and final day when we breathe our last. And if your trust is in Christ, we stand in the very presence of God in resurrection glory. But it's all because of grace. As one commentator puts it, on the last day, Jesus Christ will be glorified in us on account of what we have become by his grace. And we will be glorified in him on account of what he has done for us by his grace. Paul is always looking forward, knowing that a faithful life now 
is lived in light of the future. And so in his prayer, Paul prioritizes this end goal of glorifying Christ, this heavenly vision, so that we might live faithfully in the present. There is a danger in hard times that we lose perspective. And so we must pray. We must not allow the temporal, as difficult as it might be, cloud our vision lest we lose hope. I read a story this week that in 1952, a young woman set out to swim from Catalina Island all the way to the coast, a distance of some 20 plus miles. This is a don't try this at home story, just to be clear. She was an experienced swimmer. She was actually the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. But as it is often the case on the coast, the weather was foggy. And on the day that she swam, visibility was low, making it hard to see ahead, as well as the other boats with her trainer aboard to guide her. For hours and hours, she swam to the point of exhaustion, asking repeatedly to be taken out of the water. Her trainer constantly replied, stay in there. Keep going. You're not far. But finally, she stopped swimming altogether, and she was eventually taken out of the water. But when the boats came ashore, she discovered that she was only a half a mile away from the end. So, at the press conference the next day, she vowed to do it again. And this is what she said. If I only could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And two months later, she made good on her vow. And on a bright, clear day, she swam the entire distance. Friends, at the center of our lives and in our prayers, we must have this heavenly vision knowledge of the ultimate goal and reward of glorifying Christ, being with Christ, which should enable us to keep going. But this vision is often clouded out by lesser things in this life. And so we must pray. We must be reminded of what the ultimate goal is and that we are enabled and empowered by God himself to get there. And that is where Paul ends his prayer. The very reason that we can pray for our character. The very reason that we can pray for power with assurance. The very reason that we can have heavenly perspective is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so he says at the end of verse 12, According to what? The grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not want to end his prayer with the Thessalonians thinking that what he's really praying for is that they just try harder. And on the one hand, the Christian life does involve effort. But Paul always recognizes that this is grace-fueled effort. Because God is at work within us. We are saved by grace. We are sanctified by grace. And one day, friends, we will be glorified by grace. The very fact that he prays, the very fact that we can ask God for these things today shows that all of this hinges on grace. We are all unworthy. 
And apart from grace, we would all desire the wrong things and head towards an eternal wrong direction. But Jesus Christ came and he lived on our behalf and he went to a cross where under the greatest pressure pressure of all, he provided the perfect sacrifice for unworthy sinners like us and rose again so that we could be forgiven, accepted and adopted and one day glorified with him. And so today, We pray that we wouldn't lose sight of it. Today, we pray that we would reflect him. Today, we pray for the power to do so, and we can do so right now. I invite you to not leave this room until you have requested and perhaps even offered prayer for these things today. Let's pray now that we would. Heavenly Father, I pray first for those here who do not know you. I pray that they would realize that it is nothing but eternal destruction apart from Jesus Christ and that today they would turn and believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection on their behalf so that they can be saved. That they do not need to make themselves worthy but trust in Christ who is worthy. And I pray for us as a church, God, I pray that right now we would take advantage of the time that we have in our service and pray that we would pray for character that reflects you. That we would pray for power that comes from you. And that we would pray for perspective that is focused on you. Holy Spirit, come and move right now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.